I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. My guest on this episode is filmmaker and documentarian Alex Gibney. Alex's body of work is substantial and includes Enron, the smartest guys in the room, Taxi to the Dark Side, which won an Oscar, Going Clear, Scientology and the Prison of Belief, The Inventor, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, about Elizabeth Holmes, The Forever Prisoner, and most recently, Boom Boom, The World versus Boris Becker. He has an Academy Award, multiple Emmys, a Grammy, a couple of Peabody's, Writers Guild of America Awards, and is also president of Jigsaw Productions, which produces independent films, documentaries, and television series. Alex, I've been a fan of your work for many years and was so happy when you responded to my Twitter pitch. Thanks for joining me. <laughs> Delighted to be here, Nick. I'm a big, big fan of yours. We have a couple of similarities, I think, in our, in our background. My dad was a journalist. Oh, really? Your dad, Frank, was a journalist. It's a career that is built on curiosity and asking questions. How about you? Were you a, an inquisitive kid? I think so. Um, you'd have to ask the people around me, but uh, yeah, I, I think I was, uh, I was always interested in finding out stuff. Um, I was really interested um, as a kid, even way back when in detective stories, detective stories, you know, I remember being a big fan of Sherlock Holmes stories and uh, the Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, and Holmes was always, um, he, he couldn't stop learning. In fact, when, 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 he, when he couldn't, when he didn't have a challenge of learning something, he had to turn to cocaine. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think I was always curious. I know you folks broke up when you were young, but was your dad around you a lot? Were you aware of his work? I was. I was aware of his work. I mean, you know, uh, he lived in New York City when I was a young kid. And I, uh, I lived in Boston and I would fly down every other weekend. And, um, uh, you know, I was very much aware that he was, uh, a journalist and there were a lot of writers around and I would go to the office. So yeah, I was very much integrated into that world. Now he spent a lot of time in, in Japan, right? He did. He, he, um, you know, he learned Japanese during World War II. He left college to, to learn uh, Japanese at the, Navy language school in Boulder and became an interrogator. In fact, he was on Okinawa interrogating Japanese prisoners during the last days of the war. Um, he went back there as a journalist. I mean, he was there for the occupation, went back there as a journalist in the forties. And then many years later, he returned to supervise the, uh, translation, the encyclopedia Britannica. We remember things called encyclopedias before there was an internet sure. uh, to supervise the translation. Encyclopedia Botanica into Japanese. That must have taken a minute. He, he, he lived there for many years. He didn't have to do all the articles. His job was to supervise. But, right. But and you ended up going to, to Yale and getting a degree in Japanese studies. I did. I, I actually sort of halfway through, I, I switched to a, a major of my own making, but I spent a lot of time at Yale in the character dictionary, gamely going through, uh, trying to memorize pictograms. When did the idea of, of doing film come into your life? Because I know you came out to Los Angeles and went to UCLA's film school, but you actually ended up dropping out and becoming an editor. But what was the, what was the kernel uh, that led you to uh, film school? Well, it was in college that I got the bug. I mean, back in the day, um, and I graduated, I think, from undergraduate 
college in 77, you know, there were these film societies and every night you could go to a different film society and see a screening. And you'd, sometimes it'd be documentaries, sometimes it'd be fiction films. But I was turned on by the variety and artistry of these films in, in ways that just exploded my brain. You know, and I remember seeing, you know, one night going to see Gimme Shelter by the Maisel Brothers, the next night Exterminating Angel by Louis Bunuel. You know, it was really a tremendously exciting moment. And, and this was when, you know, Scorsese and Coppola and everybody were kind of making their mark as the young Turks in Hollywood. It seemed like everything was changing and, and movies were the exciting medium to become a part of. So that's when I got the bug, was in college. Did you originally want to make narrative movies? You know, I, I'd, um, like I said, in those days, there wasn't such a big distinction. I, I was interested in making narrative movies and indeed, as an editor, you know, I, after I left UCLA Film School, I went to work for the Samuel Goldwyn Company. Most of the work I did there was not as a documentarian, but was a, as a fiction film editor, uh, whether it was doing, God help me, uh, you know, exploitation trailers or recuts of foreign movies for Goldwyn. I, I, I then also then went on to, to cut some feature films. Um, so that's so I was in the fiction film business. And then I got frustrated as an editor and kind of hung up a shingle as a documentarian. And those were some rocky years uh, until, you know, I, I did a lot of um, scuffling and uh, doing independent writing for journals like the LA Reader and stuff like that. And then, and finally, I, I, I got my uh, leg up when I, I did a, a, a short film about, um, Big strike at Eastern Airlines. What was it called? Eastern Airlines. We don't remember Eastern Airlines. It's it, it, Eastern Airlines briefly, or part of it. They, they used to run a shuttle from between New York and Boston, and New York and Washington D.C. Anyway, it was a big national strike, uh, and I did a documentary about it. And I was kind of off and running in terms of the doc. Right? Didn't Trump end up buying that shuttle? He did. It was called. He 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 bought the shuttle and called it Trump Air. Right. Uh, I think he owned it for about a year before he ran it into the ground. He didn't have it, but he killed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk about rhythm and tone, how to tell a documentary story? Oh, those are good questions. Um, rhythm is terribly important because like music, um, you don't want to be in a place where um, rhythm becomes relentless. You want to find a way to vary the pace and the rhythm. Um to, to have a certain amount of narrative momentum, you know, like a like a good drummer might have, but also you, you want peaks and valleys. You want you want moments of quiet and you want moments of tremendous uh, excitation. Um, I think that's um, it, it's what stirs us all. So so it's important to keep that in mind. And tone is very important too. And and I feel like I change my tone depending on the subject of the film. That's one of the things my editors and I, and, and in, in fact, my cinematographers and I talk about a lot um, at the beginning of a film is what's the tone of this film going to be like? It's going to be somber. Is it be sardonic? Is it going to be lively? Um, and, and also what's the voice of the filmmaker or the narrator? You know, sometimes I narrate a lot of my films though, uh, you know, some of the music films I do, I don't narrate, but um but anyway, so we, we think about that a lot, the tone of a film. 
And, and it's not something I impose. I, I try to, to find the tone out of the material. I mentioned a couple of your, your films at the beginning. I would love to have mentioned them all, but it's like three pages on IMDb. So I had to, had to skim it down a bit. You're, you're a busy guy. A big part of your work is holding people to account. Mm. Is, is that a fair summation? Well, I think I'm interested in, I'm interested in power and I'm interested in abuses of power. And so to the, to the extent that we can try to sometimes hold people to account uh, who are abusing their power, yeah, I, I think that's fair. So, so what's the ultimate obligation or, or responsibility of a documentary filmmaker? I think your ultimate obligation is to the audience, both to engage them, to entertain them, and also hopefully to create a work of art that stays with them after they've either left the theater or the computer screen. Um, and that it, it reverberates, you know, uh, inside their brain in a way that, uh, inside their brains and in, in, in ways that are hopefully potent and, 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 and powerful. You know, sometimes you want to make them laugh, you want to make them cry, but you, more than anything, you want to create, um, moments and experiences that last in people's minds, not because they've solved the problem, but because you set them on a journey to explore further. You've covered a wide range of subject matter uh, through the years. How do you decide which projects to work on? Well, <laughs> it's not always me deciding. You know, there's a famous sports expression, luck is where opportunity meets the prepared mind. And I, I feel like I've been lucky at times in terms of the projects that have come to me. But I think, and very often, you know, uh, in order to keep working, Rather than, you know, decide this is the next project I'm going to do. And that's, that's going to be it. That's never been my MO. You know, I, I have kids who, who need to go to college and, um, got to work. Yeah. So very often opportunity comes in the form of a story that is, that is presented to me. But then I think as, as a filmmaker, you have to go through a process of deciding whether or not that's a story you want to take on and whether it's something you want to live with for two years or so. Um, and, and that's the, the calculus that has to happen. So it's not always a, a film that I think, okay, this is my next one. Sometimes it's one that, that comes to me um, in one way or another. There's a lot of secrecy around some of the subjects that, that you, you cover, and it feels like your job is to sort of perhaps unfold those secrets so that we can see them as a, as, as a viewer. Is, is that a fair observation? Well, I'm interested in mystery and I'm certainly interested, you know, part of curiosity is, is, is trying to find out, um, is trying to expose secrets, I suppose, or, 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 uh, discover them. I mean, I, I think that, um, sometimes there are secrets that I'm exposing, but sometimes it's more leading into a mystery of why is it this way or what happened? How could this person have done that? It's such a strange thing, you know? Um, how is it that the governor of New York on his way to becoming president, um, you know, ended up being ensnared, um, by the department of justice because he couldn't stop himself from, from reaching out to, to escorts. The Elliot Spitzer movie. The Elliot Spitzer film, Client 9. Um, you know, what was the mystery of, uh, of Lance Armstrong? You know, why did the U.S. government embark on a policy of torture? You start out with questions that are that become mysteries, and and you seek to solve them in some way. 
I'm wondering if you sort of look back on your on your body of work right now. Uh, your most recent film is the, the Boris Becker movie. In fact, when you and I were first talking, you were madly trying to fin finish an edit to take it to the Berlin Film Festival, right? Yes. You look back to the, the film about Eastern Airlines. It's a long time ago, I know, and there's a lot of work in between. What have you learned that has been something that's consistent that runs through through your body of work? Well, I learned more than I expected about human psychology. I learned a lot about corruption, the corruption of the spirit. And I learned also a lot about something called noble cause corruption, which is something that was um, mentioned to me first by a kid named James Ball. He's now a very accomplished journalist in the UK. Uh, but he had he was working for Julian Assange and WikiLeaks at the time. We talked a lot about noble cause corruption because noble cause corruption is what happens to somebody. It's a police term, and it, it refers to bad cops who think that you know, who determine that there's a, you know, bad guy in the block that they want to take down and they can't get them a normal way. They can't catch them, but they know they're bad. Um, and so maybe they plant a joint or, or, or bag a Coke on them and they arrest them for that. And, and then the next thing you know, that becomes a pattern of behavior. And that process by which you think you somehow, you do good things and therefore you, you deserve to be bad from time to time. Uh, that that process of noble cause corruption is one that interests me a lot, and I and I've learned to see in a number of my films. You know, you see it in um, what the U.S. government did in Taxi: The Dark Side. You see it in the executives at Enron. You see it in Lance Armstrong. You see it in Elizabeth Holmes. You know, this sense that oh, I've got a good cause, therefore I'm entitled to cheat. Right. And uh, in service of sometimes in service of that cause, or sometimes it's it's kind of like you know, when you go for a long jog, you think, well, I deserve, you know, a bag of chips now. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it, it, that, that aspect of, of, um, noble cause corruption is something I've learned a lot about. And it's also taught me a lot about character in a way that I think is instructive for this moment in time, because, uh, I, I think social media very often leads us to make bald blanket judgments about people sort of like that you know is that person thumbs up or is that person thumbs down and people are a lot more complicated than that and we're all bits of good and bad and understanding and appreciating that is uh is important social media has been around for what, 15 years something like that now i guess and in the last 10 years with twitter and instagram really seems to be driving pretty much every conversation H how much has that impacted what you do well, it's changed things somewhat, though I don't think it's, it's uh, I mean, it's become a fact of life that you need to reckon with. But I find myself continually engaged by um, the desire to understand human motivation and psychology. And I think that's a lot older than social media. If we're talking about, you know, looking at a landscape and why, why are we so polarized now? I mean, I think you could say the social media certainly plays a very important role. You know, there's a, there's a mechanism, an, an economic mechanism that's designed to keep us on various channels of social media by monetizing our vitriol. And so some, to some extent, you can look at the, the polarized cultural and political landscape and say that social media has played a powerful role in doing that. On the other hand, social media has also played a powerful role in terms of bringing us together. 
You know, I know that my wife, you know, when she posts, uh, again, with small groups of friends and is able to, to post pictures of our kids or our grandkids and likewise see those of others, you know, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, and, and it has changed the velocity of both our engagement with others and our uh, antipathy toward others in, in ways that can be dangerous. I was talking about secrecy a little bit earlier on, and I'm thinking about your work and how you have to perhaps have a little secrecy around what you do. Have you ever felt in danger through your work? I haven't felt that much in danger. I mean, I think there are circumstances where sometimes you need to be cautious. When I went by myself to Afghanistan, I need to observe, I needed to observe certain rules in order to stay out of danger, mortal, sometimes mortal danger. Same thing going to Russia or, um, and, and then sometimes when you tackle powerful institutions, whether they be a religion like the Church of Scientology or the Catholic Church or, or even the U.S. government, I think you need um, to have an understanding of, of what it is that you're doing, but also to understand that to some extent um, your position as a filmmaker or as a journalist offers some protection in the sense that you're hiding in plain sight. And sometimes that affords a little bit, by being in plain sight, that affords a little bit more protection than, than if you're hiding in the shadows. So sometimes, you know, in, in some of the films that we've done, and I think of something like Zero Days, for example, we had to be extremely cautious about things like um, source protection and security and things like that. You know, documentaries used to have a very limited audience when they were only seen in art house theaters. Yeah. Television has obviously changed that. And now with streaming, um, there's an explosion of crime and cult documentaries. The zeitgeist seems to have shifted dramatically in, in recent years. And I'm, I'm sure that everyone stuck at home during the pandemic probably played a part in that. But uh, is that it or are there other reasons? What's your take on this moment in uh, documentary filmmaking? Well, I think the moment's longer than, than you suggest. I mean, you know, I think the moment started back in the days of cable television when suddenly, uh, because of the aridity of that cable landscape, you know, plucky, independent um, theatrical distributors started to show documentaries in theaters. And actually, I think that had a lot to do with um, expanding the language of the documentary in ways that, 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 that encouraged people to be more um, forceful as, as, uh, as, as dramatists, even while you're dealing with real subjects that plus the rise of reality television, um, you know, suddenly you could, you could watch something and be engaged on it. It didn't have to be a famous actor. You were watching those two things in concert, I think created an appetite for a new kind of storytelling, which was the author documentary where you can feel the hand of the author or the filmmaker. But at the same time, you're deeply invested in the surprising world of uh, nonfiction. So uh, I, I think it goes further back than the streamers. And now the streamers have kind of taken advantage of it. And we're, go we're living through a period right now where, you know, algorithms uh, of uh, exhibitors are constraining to some extent um, the subject matter, you know, you talked about true crime and celebrity profiles. Uh, I suspect that, for example, theaters are going to come back 
in some ways because they're going to offer opportunity to see stuff that suddenly won't be available to you on the streamers as we go to ever uh, more consolidation in that realm. I'm going to jump into the music questions in a minute, but I got one more question. Your, your current film, uh, as I mentioned, is Boom Boom, The World versus Boris Becker, which is about the former German tennis star Boris Becker, who I remember when I was a kid. I mean, he was a massive tennis player back in the 80s, I think. At 85, he won Wimbledon at the age of 17. Yeah, yeah. When you set out to, to, to make a film, and maybe you can give us you know, this one as an example, what's the process? What's the process once you've made the decision that this is your next film? You start to engage your curiosity. Uh, who is this guy? How was it that he won Wimbledon at 17? Who are the people who know him? Let's start gathering footage and materials about him. Um, he, he seems to be in some financial trouble. How did he get in that kind of financial trouble? You, you start wanting to learn everything about the guy uh, and, and at the same time collecting possible witnesses and, um, uh, and materials that, that, that could go into the film. And, and then, then you slowly, it's, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, uh, when I think of like, you know, chipping away at a big block of granite, you know, to try to get down to some kind of portrait that, that somebody would recognize, but it's really more diverse and, and multifaceted than that, because you're, you're pulling at threads constantly and, and chasing down stuff that you hadn't even, you're chasing down answers to questions you hadn't even thought to ask at the beginning. You've actually made a couple of uh, music-related films, and you just told me that you're finishing one up now. I, I know that you've done uh, the Finding Fela, a Fela Kuti movie, which I loved. James Brown, uh, Mr. Dynamite. I, I also did one called uh, Sinatra, All or Nothing at All. And, and that actually led me to the one I'm just finishing called In Restless Dreams, the music of Paul Simon. And, and it was Paul who had reached out to me after seeing the Sinatra film and, and wondered if I might be interested in doing a doc about him. And originally I thought it was going to be a doc was just going to look at his, uh, you know, past glories, but he called me at a, at a point, I guess that would have been about two, two and a half years ago and said, you know, I'm working on a new album. Um, the album that is, that became seven Psalms. Would you like to, watch while I make it, you know, would, 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 you, would that be interesting to make a part of the film? That was a huge breakthrough and, and a fascinating experience to see somebody like Paul Simon go through the process of making uh, music and writing music and, and then shaping it. That was, uh, that was riveting. And so we ended up using that process, the story of making that album and interspersing it in, in sort of a dreamscape way with um, moments from his past that uh, had not been so much seen before. You said he called, D called you. D does that happen often? It sometimes does. And sometimes, sometimes they call me, sometimes I call them. It, it kind of depends. Let's jump into these music questions, Alex. I want to sort of start off at the beginning. And what is your first musical memory? Well, I think it's a memory. You know, memories are tricky because sometimes you don't know I'm becoming increasingly interested in memory. As you get older and you start losing it, that's when you... Well, yeah, exactly. But you <laughs> want to know where they come from and how they... And whether they're real or whether they're a combination of something you know you've seen and heard or something 
that's entered into them that's somewhat fictional or it's, it, it also includes stuff that you've been told. Anyway, I'm pretty sure that my first musical memory is my father singing the creed in Latin to me at bedtime. That's what he used to do in order to put me to sleep. He used to sing the creed in Latin to me. My dad was Catholic. He went to Fordham Prep in New York and, and also was a classic scholar. So, so, so he would do that. I, I usually wouldn't get too, too far before I fell asleep, but I, I, I remember, I, cer I certainly remember the first words. What about recorded music? Um, I think the first music I remember was music on my mom's stereo. You know, I, I, I moved, uh, my mom and dad got divorced. I moved to Boston. And the two albums I remember she played to death were Harry Belafonte's Songs of the Caribbean and the cast album with Rex Harrison of My Fair Lady. She wore those out. What about the radio? Did you, did you hear the radio when you were a kid? I did. It was a combination of, um, you know, that was kind of pre-FM. Um, so it was, you know, really high octane pop music or sometimes sports. I remember listening to hockey games, but yeah, I, uh, I, I definitely listened to the radio though. You know, it's funny. It was really records that got me to listen to my own music, you know, cause very often my mom would have control of the radio though. I, I did have one. Um, and cause I, I do remember listening to hockey games. But the but it wasn't until the late 60s when FM radio really started to cook that that became mm. more interesting. What was the first music you bought with your own money? That I remember. Mrs. Brown, You've Got a Lovely Daughter by Herman's Hermits. <laughs> I know it. Of course, it's British. Yeah. Yeah. That was the first record I bought. It was a 45. Wow. Uh, I brought it home and, yeah. I, I, I can't say it ended up being... One of my faves, but it's the first one I bought. What about live music? Um, do you remember your first concert? I do. That was epic. It was uh, Jimi Hendrix at Boston Garden. Wow. Yeah. I went with a pal of mine named Rory Pierce. We took the subway to Boston Garden and we saw Jimi Hendrix. We, we were pretty high up in the nosebleed seats, but we were astounded at the sound that came out of those. It was the Jimi Hendrix experience. And so just three people you know, on the stage with this wall of sound. It was incredible. How old were you? Well, we'd have to figure it out. It must have been around 14. That must have been, I figure it must have been around 67. What was that feeling like? You're going to see music live for the first time and you're seeing this incredible artist. I mean, look, that music felt so loud, but it also seemed to just kind of penetrate us, you know, in a way that was just almost like a religious experience. It just made our bones rattle, and, and not in a bad way. Uh, <laughs> it was really transformative. We, we walked out of there as if we were, you know, floating. And I, I don't really remember much about the subway back. Um, somehow our parents let us go. I mean, age of 14. Uh, I don't know if I let my kids go to Boston, Madison Square Garden from New Jersey. Back then, you know, things were looser. Yeah, people were not quite as worried about kids being on public transport. I mean, I remember growing up in Birmingham. I mean, I was, you know, parents divorced early. So I was just on buses and trains at the age of yeah. eight or nine. It's, you know, nobody was too worried about it back then. That's right. Do you dance? Uh, you know, I, I'm not a great dancer, but of course I dance. Everybody dances. What do you listen to when you want to dance? 
Well, uh, you know, I, I've thought about this. Prince, I think, would be, you know, just instantly. If, if, if I really want to dance uh, and I want to feel good, Prince just is, is a go-to. What do you listen to when you're feeling sad? Now, I thought about that question, and I didn't know whether, you know, I had two answers for that one. One is, if I want to feel sad or I want to indulge that feeling of, of sadness, there's a song called The Storms Are the Ocean by Ola Bell that I found find very moving. But if, if I'm sad and I want to get happy, um, the, the music I listen to is Marisa Monte. Um, and sometimes... <laughs> There's this record I played to death. It's the unplugged uh, record by Julieta Venegas, which I just love. So uh, it was produced, I think, by Gustavo Santaolala. It was, and, yeah. Um, so, so those are two that are kind of go-tos for me. If I'm feeling down and I want to get up, those are, those are go-tos. The other one is something like if I'm, if I'm going to go there, Coltrane is another way of going there, too, or... Or, or sometimes um, uh, Miles Davis, Elevator to the Gallows. But uh, if I want to get happy, those are the two I go to. I'm a big fan of Julieta Venegas. She's actually done the podcast. Oh, has she? Yeah, about a year or so ago. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love her music. Love, 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 love her music. Well, I, and I went to, I took my daughter to see her in New York. It was great, really good. But I, that, that unplugged album, there's something about that is really, really tremendous with those tubas. If you could only hear one song for the rest of your life, what would you pick? This was hard. And I and the one I came up with was Spiritual by Charlie Hayden and the version uh, with him and uh, Pat Metheny. So jazz. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the others were like Blue Monk or, uh, or Bye Bye Blackbird by Miles Davis. They're just transporting to me. Yeah, and I also thought jazz is better if you talking about one song only one song for the rest of your life somehow a song without lyrics or vocals seems more transporting than than one with vocals that's a great answer you and i are both old enough to remember when mtv started yeah i couldn't come up with an answer for this one i i i can't tell you what my favorite music video is i i i, I i'm gonna fail you there can you tell me a favorite music video i remember some some of the early David Byrne and Talking Heads videos, I, I, I just thought were fantastic. Um, he had a really great visual sense in a way that was playful, but also leaned into the music in a way that felt more satisfying. That Part of the problem with music videos when they first started to come out was that, you know, music was always transporting and it took you someplace uh, and your imagination carried you to imagery that you would create. And then suddenly you found yourself whistling a tune and you would start to see the images of the music video in a way that was somewhat exciting, but also somehow limiting. Like now that those images were the ones that were required for that music. And, and, and so there's something cool about them, but, but also not that, in, in a way they kind of limited your imagination. I thought the way to square that circle was when you know, one of my favorite music documentaries is Stop Making Sense by Jonathan Demme. But that was a show that David Byrne carefully choreographed visually. But, but it's one also which gives you the freedom to be transported by the music in terms of your imagination 
even though as a spectacle, they mounted something that was quite visual. They're re-releasing that movie, I think, in the next month or two. Uh, there's yeah. an anniversary edition restored and all, all that kind of stuff. And I play that one to death. And I, and I remember during the pandemic, we would fire it up. It was just so elevating. It's a great film. It really is. And it was it was made in 1986. Yeah. We were there. I was actually in L. They shot it in L.A. And my wife and I were actually there at one of the shows when they were shooting it. Wow. It's at the Doolittle Theater, if I'm not mistaken, in, in, in L.A. And um, um, there was Jonathan Demme with all of his cameras. Uh, yeah, we were in the audience. That was great. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. And, and I've seen it a number of times through the years. And I think I'm going to go see it when it's back in theaters. I'm sure it'll be a limited run, but it's just something very, very special. I was thinking while you were talking about, you know, music, when you hear it, it's, it's, it's in your head, or the, your imagination paints its own picture. Um, but that's not unlike a book, right? And then when yes. a book is made into a film, it's kind of like a, a microcosm of the macrocosm there. That's why I think that some of the best literary adaptations are usually made from not bad books, but maybe books that aren't masterpieces. Right. You know, you're not so upset if the film takes a liberty with the book as, as you might be. You know, I don't think there's ever been a really good film adaptation of The Great Gatsby, for example, which is one of my favorite novels, you know, they're all okay, but they're just not that, they're just not that interesting to me. And they never really were able to capture the spirit um, and vitality of, of the book. And maybe because the book was just too good. I, I like that. Um, you know, if you're a filmmaker, don't go, don't go make a classic, you know, f find a book that can do with a little help in the storytelling. Yeah, I think you, you, you want to find a novel with a flaw and then you, you, sometimes you, you lean into that flaw, but, but sometimes there's something pulpy or, or motivating about it that you feel you can explore or expand and, and dig into. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. I mean, that question also popped up two answers for me. Um, one is a it's a recent discovery of mine, but it's not a recent record. It's 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 called Rejoice uh, by Hugh Masekela and Tony Allen. Tony Allen was Velikuti's drama, and uh, I just stumbled on it. You know, partially because you know Masekela was was part of the band, the Graceland band of Paul Simon's when they toured Graceland, and so I started going down a, a Hugh Masekela rabbit hole. And, and stumbled upon this album, Rejoice, with, with Hugh and Tony Allen. It's great. It's really good. The other one, there's, my son turned me on to something recently, which um, I, I like a lot. Uh, it's a band called Las Ligas Menores, and the album is Fuego Artificial. Um, a cool band and uh, really, really fun. I don't know why. I, I don't really speak Spanish or Portuguese. Well, likewise, to be honest with you, and uh, I've also had the very good fortune in this radio career that I've had here in Los Angeles for uh, <laughs> 25 years now to be exposed to a lot of Latin music, which I really wasn't when I was growing up. I mean, I grew up in Birmingham, you know, it's like Black Sabbath. Yeah. And so by the time I got to Los Angeles, I'd already been doing radio for a while. I started to get turned on to Spanish language music, and I still only have little bits and pieces of Spanish, but I don't need to necessarily understand what's being said to appreciate music. I think for me, music will touch me in a number of ways. If it makes me want to tap my toes, 
it's already achieved something. That's right. If there are lyrics that make me think, then that's something else. And if they're combined, then, you know, that that's one way of doing it. But uh, I'm very much of the belief that you can listen to music sung in Spanish, Swedish, French, or whatever. And if you don't understand it, if it feels good, then that's really what music is supposed to do. 100%. I remember there's a, I was trying to remember there was a, I got to look it up in my CD collection. Spotify kind of sometimes ruins your ability to to go back to to music that it's not part of the algorithm but there was a Ry Cooter had discovered this Okinawan rock and roll which was great and that was then who knows what they were saying uh, but it was fun to listen to hey you did Japanese studies man come on I, I do so I, I I have a bit of an advantage there you're absolutely right is there an artist that you personally love but you feel that they perhaps never quite got the break that they should have? Well, I couldn't come up with a good answer for this, except that it's kind of a, I came up with a kind of a trick answer, which is, uh, I remember uh, when I was, uh, you know, a teenager, there was a band that broke up before they got recognized, really. It was called Buffalo Springfield. They're famous now, sure. but, but they were never really recognized at the time. They went on to be Neil Young, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Nash and Young, yeah. um, Poco, whatever. But but at the time, it was like they came and went so fast, uh, and they had a one hit for what it's worth, which is not my favorite song of theirs at all. But but they were never really recognized in their moment, and they broke up before they had a chance to realize how great they were. I think their their album last time around, which doesn't have any big hit on it, um, maybe Kind Woman, um, you know, it was a great album, and and it's still a mood album I put on. That's another thing that 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 I kind of miss is the mood album, right? Where you, you put on a record and it's designed to convey a certain mood or feeling or idea like Joni Mitchell's Blue or something like that. Is, is that something for you on your own or is that for something, something when you're entertaining, for example, like if you have somebody around and you want to set a mood? Well, it's either. I mean, sometimes I want to be in a mood and, and I'll go there. Uh, and, and sometimes at a party... You know, we'll set a mood, whether it's a dancing mood or whether it's an upbeat mood or, you know, <laughs> um, or or whether it, it feels like you're in a quiet moment. Yeah. So so if, if there's a mood, if there's a quiet mood I'm looking for, sometimes um, I, I put on Beyond the Missouri Sky by Charlie Hayden and Pat Metheny. That conveys a powerful mood. If you're if you're in a beautiful, natural place. And you put that on, it's, it's absolutely transporting. Do you have a musical guilty pleasure? Yeah. <laughs> so this was funny. This was um, when I was uh, looking for stuff to put on my wall. When I rented an apartment while I was in college in New Haven, we went to a Salvation Army store looking for old record covers to put on the wall. And one of them was a, a, an incredible record cover called Tropical Nights, and the artist was Elvira Rios, and she had a song called Flores Negras. So he was not, I mean, the floor, you know, Elvira Rios is not exactly like Taylor Swift or the Beatles or something like that. It's not, she was a, a songstress and, and not, not a, a particularly magnificent one, but there's, there's, you know, I could listen to that over and over and over again. Don't ask me why. It's a moment. It's a moment. Yeah. And it's, and, and I, and I have a hard time listening to it without the scratches. 
you know, I, I, I don't know if the, the, the music would mean as much to me without those scratches. I only have it on, on, um, on vinyl. I don't think, I think it's completely disappeared. I, I, I'd be surprised if anybody could find it on any Spotify list. That's the power of music, though, isn't it? You know, to, to the memory of something, uh, the memory of a piece of music or a sound that can just take you right back to that college room or right back to where you met somebody, you know, those moments in your life. Yep, agreed. We've been talking a while, but it seems to have gone very quickly. And we're at the last question, which is, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I'm feeling happy uh, with a tinge of sadness. And the tinge of sadness related to music is the passing of Tina Turner. Yeah. Who is, um, such a magnificent artist. And we've been listening to her music all day long. Um, uh, really, uh, River Deep, Mountain High. We're recording this conversation uh, on uh, May 25th, which is the day after she, she passed away. I did a, a radio show this morning and we, uh, we played that and Proud Mary and a, a few other things as well. And the, uh, the HBO documentary on her from, what, two years ago? I thought it was good, and and, and she made a, a, an appearance that I didn't think she was going to make in it, and 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 I thought she was potent. Everything about her was potent. I I, I did a, a a doc series called Rolling Stone Stories from the Edge about Rolling Stone magazine, and one of the pieces we did was a was an early piece about Ike and Tina Turner. Um, it was a, that that's in that that's in that series, and that was really it was, it was riveting. So before I let you go, um, we, we mentioned the Boris Becker movie, uh, which is the, the most recent one. You talked about finishing up the, the Paul Simon movie. I, I also believe you're working on a, a film about Elon Musk. Yes, I am. That, that'll, that'll be a little longer in the, uh, in the making, but um, that, should, that should be interesting. I'm not going to say much about it because I, I, you know, I'm at the beginning now. Sure. I'm, I'm at the early stages. And... He's a fascinating character, and he sort of embodies 21st century power. And I'll, I'll be intrigued uh, at, at what I discover. I'll be intrigued to see it when, uh, when, when, you, get it, <laughs> when you get it done. Me too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. As I mentioned at the beginning, big fan of your work. And, and to be quite honest with you, you know, when you're interviewing people who interview people for a living, I was a little, little anxious today about talk, talking with you. Because, you know, we, we do different things, but we sort of, uh, at least in our conversations with people, we mine the same kind of territory. And uh, I'm always interested to speak to somebody who is, is after the truth. And, and I think at the end of the day, that's kind of what you're, you're about, right? I hope so. I mean, it's a, I, I don't know if you always get there, but the journey is, is definitely worth it. You try to get there. You try to get to what, what, what you think might be the truth. That's what it's all about. Thank you so much for talking to me. Delighted. Great pleasure. The Sound of Success is hosted and produced by myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple, sparknetwork.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>